0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air, online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. We have with us today the uh, the director of this wonderful documentary called uh, A Good American. Let's describe what it is, but we're going to be speaking with... Friedrich Moser, in just a second, uh, The explosion of information in the digital age left government agencies like the NSA struggling with bureaucracy and technology to keep up with the changing times. Responding to the challenge, NSA technical director Bill Binney and a small team of codebreakers developed thin thread, an astonishingly effective data collecting and sorting program that also protects privacy. Despite its success, Thin Thread is discontinued just weeks before 9-11. And that's going to be the—I'm going to leave it there because there's just so much more to this documentary, and it's such a well-done documentary. Not only is it information-rich, but it's also beautifully shot. The the interviews in it are just wonderful interviews, but as well, just from a cinematic point of view, very, very well done. So I'm proud and honored to have with us today Director Friedrich Moser, the director of A Good American. Friedrich, welcome to Film School.
1: Hello. Welcome.
0: Yeah, thank you, and thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Let's, let's get to well, this is sort of the, the big picture uh, about what happened with Bill and also how you came to the to decision to make a documentary about this story.
1: For me, the entire journey actually to look into surveillance started with WikiLeaks, um, and not actually with with the, 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 the not actually with Cablegate, but afterwards when Anonymous hacked Visa, PayPal, and Mastercard, and uh, because this was some sort of a unusual pattern for me, and I thought in the digital realm there must be something going on that I have no no clue about, no no idea about. And so I started to get interested in in these things that were ongoing there. And I ended up with the story of a hacker collective and the particular story of a German hacktivist who were involved. So the the group's name was Telecomics, and they were involved in the Arab Spring to keep up the flow of information in and out of the countries where the, the revolutions were ongoing when the dictators had shut down the internet and all channels of communication, of, mm-hmm. of digital communication. Mm-hmm. And they actually managed to do this, so they were very efficient and, and very successful in Egypt. This was in in early 2011, a little bit less in Libya, uh, but then they ran into a total disaster in Syria. Mm. And and the reason, when, when they started to, to look into why the contacts on the other side by all captured, tortured, and, and, and executed. They found out that on the servers of the Syrian government, totally illegally, there was a, an American software installed, mm. that an American surveillance software. So they, they were looking for traces of his software around the globe, and they found out that this, the same software actually was running on most of the dictatorship's servers plus most in the European countries, totally legally, in all, in all the cases. Mm-hmm. So this, this was pre-Snowden. And when in spring 2013 we were about to get the, the money together and start going to production with that film, the Snowden story broke. And it showed that surveillance was just magnitudes bigger than what we had expected through our story. And to me, as I'm a trained historian, so I'm not a trained filmmaker, I'm a trained historian by my academic degree, The first question was, how in hell did we end up here? How did we come from a situation in the Cold War when these intelligence agencies, by and large, did the surveillance of of our military enemies, how did we get into a situation when we, the citizens, had become the enemies? Because now they were watching us. And I thought the best way to tell this story was through the personal journey of somebody who had been in this surveillance world for a long time and had witnessed all these changes going on. Or, if there weren't any changes, had changed his mind. Mm. And so, um, somehow, Bilbini was on my list of interviews uh, for this previous project about this activist group. And uh, going through my list of interview partners, he landed on top, and I asked him, and he agreed to, to make a film about his life, basically. And this was in August 2013, so a couple of months after the Snowden disclosures. And then in October, in late October 2013, he came over to Vienna, Austria, and we did the first series of interviews and background talks, and this was the first time when I, when I heard the story of sinthread, mm-hmm. this revolutionary surveillance program that managed to combine efficient, targeted surveillance with Granting privacy to anybody who has nothing to hide, actually,
2: right.
1: to basically to anybody who who isn't uh, breaking the law, and so the the from, from me actually the real question was why has this story not been told yet? Because it was a story from the early two thousands, actually starting in the late nineteen nineties and uh, then following up in the early in the early two thousands, and I am a, a Actually, a, a big fan of American political filmmakers like Alex Gibney and uh, Errol Morris and Michael Moore, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought unbelievable that these guys had missed the story, and I, I said, "Thank you, God, for <laughs> for, for giving me the opportunity <laughs> to do to do a story on something so unbelievable."
0: Yeah, and and I and it, we talked uh, just briefly before we came on the air that. This film is so there's so many layers to your film uh it, it it that but bill Benny is our he is our guide he is our way into this story and 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 helping us understand what he did, the ramifications of what he did and and all of the other things that unfold in your film that are truly disturbing and yet at the same time. We need to know. And it's this the power of information, hopefully, is enough to spur people to action. But I want to talk about Bill Benny. Um, I think you described him as, you know, sort of a beautiful mind kind of, as we know from the film, that he has that kind of a a, of an intelligence, a a, a supremely um, focused intelligence. Tell us a little bit about him and his background.
1: Yeah, so so Bill Binney is what I I actually would consider him some sort of a mathematical genius. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's a sort of Alan Turing of the Americans, you know, like two generations after yes. after the original Alan Turing, who was depicted in the Imitation Game, right. the, the the British movie some two years ago or so. Yeah,
2: about the codebreakers. Um, the code breakers. And
1: yeah. and and I think that um, besides that, he's just. He's he's coming from rural Pennsylvania, so he is actually a boy from the countryside and he has maintained much of the attitudes of, you know, being like well grounded, not being snobbish at all, <laughs> despite being a genius. And um and he very early on in his career, so in the in the mid sixties, when he started to work for the uh for the US Army, uh he was assigned to a military post in Turkey to listen in on the Soviet military. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turkey is a member of NATO, so this is why you had um, American listening posts there. And back in the days, the big challenge actually was, how can we prevent another crisis as the Cuban Missile Crisis when one side had no idea what the other side was planning? So that, that, that there would never be another situation where through just an accident or a misunderstanding, and nuclear war would be triggered. Right. And this is, this is when actually uh, the the American government and the American, well, the Department of Defense started to, to uh, actually go more and more, uh, or gave more and more money also towards the NSA, and uh, signal intelligence became very important. And Bill Binney, on that post, discovered that through the metadata of the communication, so who was communicating with whom, when, how, from where, to where, and so on. So through this metadata um, attributes, he could actually paint a more accurate picture than through trying to decipher the encoded messages that, they, that the Russians were actually sending around. And so he actually saw that while if you have content, so what you say, um, that this could be easily manipulated, it was much harder to manipulate these characteristics of the communication,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the so-called metadata, what we call metadata today. And he, he started to focus on that, and he broke a... He actually solved the problem that uh, the American troops had, the American, uh, the American and NATO military had with the Russians back then. And in the 70s, he single-handedly hacked the Soviet Union. He hacked their command and control system right. alone with pencil and paper. This alone is an amazing story.
2: Yeah, it is. But okay. this
1: is just a backstory. Yeah.
2: It is. So
1: he but so so this is like to to see how, how, how deeply back in history this story actually is rooted, but it's so actual for today because this is this is the kind of conversation that we are still having when it comes to our civil rights, to our civil liberties. Yes. So it, should the government be allowed to collect all our Content, so what we are communicating with each other, you know, um, or as John, John Oliver put it, our dick pics, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so <Yeah>. um,
2: these,
1: <laughs> these kind of informations, or should they be allowed only to watch into the metadata of our communication? Yeah. The next question is is it necessary to collect? All the metadata of our of our com, um, communication and um, eat on whatever other metadata we are generating, like using an you know um, easy pass on the highway or or paying at the at the you know with your um, paying paying at the at the re- register mm-hmm. at, or with the cash machine or whatever you know. Mm-hmm. So right. each time you're using uh, um, let's say a a digital device you're leaving a footprint and basically the governments are collecting these footprints yeah. the question is should they even be allowed to collect the footprints because you can you actually can tell such a lot about our behavior and what we are up to through these footprints that we are leaving right and this is something that he discovered in the 60s when working on the military and so that's one aspect the other aspect is from very early on uh Within working first in the military and then from 1970 onwards, uh, working with the NSA as a civilian, he had problems with the internal bureaucracy. Yeah. NSA is a huge organization like any governmental organization, but also like any big enterprise, any big company. And you have uh, rivalry between departments. Uh, you have envy between individuals. Uh, you have some people who like to work together, others who actually don't like that so much and these are all elements that actually go into this story but then it's also another thing it's also the the transition from the analog age to the digital age so it's really a very very rich story and uh we try to give our best actually to to capture most of it
0: yeah and I, i just want to compliment you on a couple of things one is I think this film has what, for me, is the best definition of what metadata is and why it's so important. Because we we hear that we hear these phrases thrown around a lot, just because it's it, it's a part of a news story. But I, I from and I thought I understood it, but I after have, after having watched A Good American, I have a much better idea of why it's so relevant, why it's so important. So um for that alone I think this is a public service uh that you perform <laughs> by do, by being able to explain these these relatively complex issues in a very relatable and understandable way but also and something I talk about quite often when I get the opportunity is that the the government and law enforcement it has always wanted more information about potential perpetrators or perpetrators really of crimes and all that that impulse to gather as much information is kind of endemic to that that way of thinking but in the past they've been inhibited by the technology the availability of that of that information but now they're not and now we Americans and really people all over the world can expect no expectation of, of privacy. We the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, all these things are gone. It, it, they're just words on a on a piece of paper at this point, in my opinion. And I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is a part of a discussion you want to get into. But this is what your film for me is about. A lot of it is about we have no expectation of privacy we are, we're presumed guilty until we can prove otherwise, if they suspect us of anything. And the other part of this is, we're, they're allowed to know everything about our lives, and we're not allowed to know anything about how they're, what they're doing. And I find that dynamic uh, s- very, very troubling. I'm not supposed to know what the government's doing, but they're allowed and, and entitled to find out anything and everything about my life, at least in a digital, in a digital life. And I, I just find that dynamic is very, very disturbing.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, and, and certainly, this is not just an American problem. It's just, it's the same problem over here in Europe. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, the challenge is through the, through the transition into the digital age, technologically, it just has become so easy and convenient yeah. to do these things. Right. And so one of the arguments pushed forward by those who want to expand these surveillance powers and the you know the kind of data i mean big data mining actually means you are doing data farming you're yeah. doing the farming of data of real people
2: yeah
1: you know yeah. in the real world pushing forward try to explain to us look the, the digital age and the 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 digital realm, the, this space that is opening up here with the Internet and, and digital communication, that's just something completely new and different and we should treat it with, you know, as something new and different um, in regard to how the laws were and how the rules were. I'm totally opposed to this. I think our, our digital selves and our digital life is just an extension of our ordinary, physical, analog life. Mm-hmm. And, of course, to this extension, the same rules and protections apply that have ever applied in our democratic societies, in our societies where you have a rule of law. And And I think this is a, this is a, a conversation that is not really happening because it actually, I think it really goes down to how do we treat how do we treat um, this new space that we are opening up through digital devices? Mm-hmm. Is it something that is internal to us? Is it something, is it something that really uh, is a part of ourselves and our identities and our personalities? Or is it something different? Is it abstract? Is it just data? And I think it's not. I think it really belongs to us. And, and this is why it is so crucial to fight back yes. against those who want to basically milk us eternally. I've, I've spoken to, an, to a tech engineer recently, and he said, you know, one of the problems in the, in, that we are facing now is we have some sort of new proletariat coming up. Like, you know, like back in the days when you, if you look at the Manchester style liberalism in mm-hmm. England, or the, the era of industrialization in, in the U.S. and also on the continent, in Europe, um, where people had nothing except the workforce. Today it's like you have some people being so cut out of society that they have nothing left except their data. And I think, and so and he, he basically said, we have to fight to protect at least these properties that these poor people have. Yeah in order to not yeah. basically well, eliminate them from the societal issue, uh, tissue. Yeah. And, and I, I actually agree with that. Yeah. Um, I, I think we are getting into very philosophical discussions with, uh, on the one hand, but that have very deep and, and dire consequences in our practical life.
2: Right.
1: And uh, I, I hope that my film manages to spark some of these discussions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, of course, there is this one discussion, would this program have prevented 9-11 or not? Okay, right, right. That's, that's somehow open, and uh, I don't want to answer it. Um, but, but I think it's much more richer. It's about what happens to the ethics. What happened actually to the ethics in the transition or during the transition from the digital age, to the, uh, from the analog age to the digital age in the U.S. military? In the in the in our Western intelligence agencies, right. and I think that's something that's that's a that, that's a really tough question to ask, because as you say, they know everything about us, and we are not supposed to know anything about them. Well, actually, in a democratic open society, it should be the reverse. Yeah, they shouldn't know about us. Yeah, we should have our privacies and our civil liberties, but we should know everything what they are doing because basically we are paying them. They are they are living off our tax money, and uh, one of the really you know absurd parts of, the, of this entire story that I'm telling in my film is the the shocking cover-ups that happened after nine eleven. Right,
0: and le- this up- is
1: like this uh, for me. This is like the most shocking thing.
0: Right, and I want to go and, back and, again, and
1: that sorry. that like sixteen years after,
2: yeah.
1: all of this is still in secret. And it shouldn't be right there are parts there there is one document that was a, there was an investigation of the Department of Defense into all these things that happened around bill business program um and the way and and the reasons why it was shut down just a couple of weeks before nine eleven and um this report was basically classified by the Department of Justice the day it came out the date was published by the by the doD it was censored by the DOJ. And uh, you have entire chapters marked with U for unclassified. And underneath, everything is just blanked out, empty, nothing, n- no information whatsoever. So this is, this is a classical cover-up, and I think it's a classical case of corruption, and it should not be treated any different just because it's happening in, in, the, in, in, in the surveillance world and with the intelligence agencies. I, I don't think it should be treated any different than any other case of corruption.
0: I couldn't agree more, and I just want to get back. A l- well, I want to talk, go back to the film, some of the things in the film. But I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with uh, Friedrich Moser. He's the director of the film A Good American, and you can find out more about the film by going to agoodamerican.org. You're also on Facebook, facebook.com/aGoodAmerican, and on the Twitter handle is aga movie uh, or your your Twitter account. And you're you. This film touches, in, in addition to what you're talking about, the intel, the intelligence community itself, and uh, Bill Benny I love that <laughs> that you open the film with Bill Benny saying, "I am not a person who's predisposed to kill myself." He he apparently it was important for him to get that out there in case he ends up. You know, uh, uh, in a you know, he falls down in his house someday or appears to have killed. I mean, this, there's a whole bunch of there's just a whole lot going on in the film. But that you op- sort of open the film with him declaring that he's not a person who's prone to suicidal thoughts or to suicidal yeah. actions. I, I said uh, I think that speaks a lot to sort of just how dire this situation feels
1: yeah this this was actually when he first met with uh with his whistleblower attorney Jessalyn reddock yeah and uh and I think since he went public in two thousand and eleven um i think since then the risk has gone you know that somebody would do something yeah. to him, yeah. but of course he comes from the innermost circle of national you know national, of national se- security yeah. and of the intelligence agencies yeah. <laughs> because he used to be. Uh, the technical director of the NSA, so mm-hmm. he was like the leading technical person at at the National Security Agency, and so he knew also the guys from CIA, and he knew about black ops, and he he knew that he knew some guys who were doing this kind of jobs, right, yeah. right. So of of course, of course, he was he was a red back back then. I don't think that anything, or I mean, no, never never say, say no. no, but. No, no. Uh, no. I think from, for us, it was important. So for me as a director, because, well, well let's, let's phrase it differently. When we had this tremendous amount of stories, uh, we needed to find a way through it. And we needed to f- to find a focus. And this took us a long time, honestly. Yeah. I think this took us like half a year, only to find the focus. So we already had some scenes edited, uh, but then... In setting the focus and say, okay, that's, that's the direction we want to, we want to, to, to guide the, the viewer through this, uh, array of stories and story layers. Um, this was a tough choice and, um, we had many discussions, but then in the end I said, no, I actually want to have these, these two beginnings. <laughs> the first one with 9-11 and the, the second entry is basically him being at risk. Yeah, because it opens up two different story layers early on, which allows us to switch between them as we go forward in yeah. the film.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, um, and also, like, in addition to all of this uh, remarkable story of Bill Binney and the, his colleagues and the development of Thin Thread and how innovative it was and how it, as you described, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we came as close to annihilating the civilized world as we have ever come in fact it had not been for the actions of many unsung heroes including some soviet submarine commanders who were under the impression that they were at war and it had not been for the actions of a particular submarine uh, commander they would have launched a nuclear attack on the united states so and so that proximity to the apocalypse has given a lot of people reason to try to figure out how to make sure that never ever happens again, but in addition to that, we also talk about the NSA, in, in which up until a few years ago, we were told didn't exist, let alone know anything about it. <laughs> So there are so many things going on here, and this scandal, as you described, and also the other scandal which barely gets talked about in this country, which is extremely important, and that is the privatization of our intelligence-gathering capability in this, in this country. We are farming this out to corporations who can turn around and sell it to other people. and or, I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen, but the fact is that most people assume that these are government secrets when, in fact— a lot of this is corporate pri- pri- proprietary secrets, and w- over which we have no real control. And, and if I'm exaggerating this, uh, Friedrich, let me know because I I, I think that there's just a no. Whole bunch-
1: I, I I actually think you're totally right. I mean, the outsourcing is a real problem. Yeah. The interesting part, the interesting story behind the outsourcing is different, however. Um, there is a very good book which is called. Buys for Hire. Uh-huh. It's from the mid-2000s or from the late-2000s
2: yeah.
1: by Tim Shorok. Uh He's a an investigative journalist in Washington, D.C. And he, he was putting together material about all these outsourcing processes because he found it interesting. And, the, and um, the origins actually were not that they were planning to to outsource this in order to avoid public scrutiny. But it happened because of the success of the Cold War, and uh, our publics, both in Europe and in America, thinking that now we had to sort of cut back on the military expenses. Yeah. But then you had all these these small wars popping up everywhere. Yeah. So in our neighboring country, so I'm I'm from Austria, at this in the center of Europe, but our neighboring our neighboring country Yugoslavia ended up in a bloody civil war, mm-hmm. um, the worst, with the worst war crimes since the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And, and this was just one, one of these uh, smaller wars that were popping up. And the question was, how can, how can... So the question for the military was, how can we engage in these wars and try to keep them down, um, but without, without uh, going up with our defense budgets and, and so on? And this is yeah. when they started to outsource so I don't think it was on purpose. Mm-hmm. I think it was really um, it happened by accident.
2: Yeah.
1: And I also I also think I, I'm I'm an avid avoider of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. As a historian, if there was ever one conspiracy that had worked, I would have learned about it.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: hey, I've never heard about any. So I think many things are just happening. You know, there's, there's a lot of small coincidences that trigger. Bigger events, but then the question is not the question is not so much um, if this was planned or not, but how we cope with it. Right. And something that I find extraordinary in the in the in the way how the energy NSA management coped with the situation of nine eleven was this total immorality of just seeing business opportunity in there, yeah, yeah, and nothing else, right? And and this is this was for me the real shocking thing. Yeah. This was the thing that I had not expected,
0: right? I, li- but on the
1: other hand, yeah. why, right? And and if if, if I ask my now, then it's because we are told in all these gorgeous spy films and spy mm-hmm. movies and spy stories that I love, like you know the James Bond franchise or
2: yeah.
1: uh, Jason Bourne or Ethan Hunt. Um, Mission Impossible—you never see any case of corruption. There's no money involved. If you have an enemy, or if you have a bad guy within, he certain he may have some revenge uh, motive, or his he, his motive may be that he switched sides for whatever reason. But it's never corruption.
2: Yeah.
1: And this is this is why we are sort of shocked to discover that it's it's actually happening in plain sight, and it's happening, of course, also here. As it's happening anywhere in society and anywhere in in our economy.
2: Right.
0: Well, and I'm a little more predisposed to believe in conspiracies in the sense that I believe in conspiracies of convenience, and I do think that money is the the, is often the thread. That's all you need to conspire. And I also look at nine eleven. I I don't want to go down the nine eleven you know stuff too hard here, but at the same time, (laughs) at the same time. You know the people who were in the, those planes hijacking those planes were mostly Saudis, right? Yeah. And and there's and so so we attacked Iraq. I mean, it's hard to not see that. I don't know if that's a conspiracy so much as a, a convenient opportunity to carry out an agenda. Uh, and yeah, so,
1: I, I actually think it was a convenient opportunity, and I think Dick Cheney would have waited for any other convenient opportunity. Right. You know like uh, right. a plane being downed or whatever.
0: Right, but but in, but yeah. but where the conspiracy for me comes in, I agree with you. But where the conspiracy comes in is we didn't do anything to Saudi Arabia. There was no sanctions, there was no virtually the investigations were shut down before they chased down any of the leads. There were so many things about what happened with Saudi Arabia <clears throat> and the relationship to the money and the in the hijackers that that's my conspiracy. Somewhere along the line, somebody made a decision yep. not to find out, and so that is for me. Now that may be the you know this full blown conspiracy, but at the same time, politically, economically, oil wise, whatever it is, that's a conspiracy to me. That defines a conspiracy. So that's just I just want to make sure I you know get that out there. But uh,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean I, I actually agree. You know that that these 28 <sighs> pages took so long to be disclosed yeah. It's a shame.
0: Well, and they—it's a shame,
1: and, and it's and it's a betrayal to the American people.
0: Yeah, and those leads were not followed either. They 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 got they took a whiff of some of those particular connections to actual officials in Saudi Arabia and just backed away. So I, again, I'm yeah, all right. We don't. I didn't want to get caught up in that. I'm sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but I I want again once again, and I've you've been kind enough to spend uh, a lot of time with me today. So I I thank you for that. But I also want people to know about a good American and Bill Benny and and his story and his genius and his patriotism and and how this is such a great thread to be pulled on to get us into your story, this bigger picture story. It's a remarkable documentary. I'm really, truly uh, very impressed with it. And for those of those people who are into documentaries, I would recommend, along with A Good American, see there's a film called Secrecy, which was a terrific documentary about this kind of stuff, as well as uh, uh, sh- uh, you mentioned Gibney, and I, I will say uh, 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 zero Hours, or zero, zero Days, pardon me. Zero Days is another one. Zero Days, yeah. Zero, those, yeah, you watch
1: I, the... I about Stuxnet, which is also about, you know, somebody messing it up, and yeah. then and then, and then then you're ending up with a huge problem.
0: Yes, yeah. so those three documentaries I strongly recommend, but this documentary is going to be in theaters here in Los Angeles on February 10th. You were talking about uh, a, a screening that you're hopefully going to have. Go ahead, tell us a little bit about that screening that you're hoping to to get... Or, or well, is it something um, you're far enough along? I, I, to talk I have,
1: I, I have been uh, trying to find ways of using this story for political action yeah. uh, since basically the first, the first shoots in 2014, right. and so I got connected through political people, political anti-surveillance people or, or privacy activists in Berlin to the producers of of Oliver Stone's film, Snowden, which mm-hmm. I think is also a very good film, yeah. in exposing how it actually works, how surveillance actually works. And um, and then, so we got together somehow, and then I managed to get Oliver Stone on board as, exec- as executive producer of our film, and I'm really very honored because I've been a fan of his work for a long time.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, we are trying to set up a screening to get, uh, with the Q&A, together with him, in L.A., for the 18th of of uh, February so this is this is what we are working on and uh, it should be confirmed within the next days mm-hmm. I'm very much looking forward to this well, actually I have to say
0: well excellent well so you would be coming to the United States for that it sounds like
1: I will be coming for sure and um, I'm also working on, uh, on new stories where part of part of the interviews I will be doing in the US and um, other parts in Europe and then I have the next Big, big story. Which actually will will bring me for a longer time to California. I, I found a, I met the guy a year and a half ago who found a way to reverse climate change.
2: Okay, and that's,
1: that's the next big story. <laughs> wow, I'm working on, and I I'm so much looking forward to it. It's going to be so beautiful because I'm I'm actually I'm I'm doing the cinematography myself. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I've been working with with um, the RED camera from since. Actually, when it came out in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and I'm I'm a huge fan of. Um, this is now getting a little bit more geeky. Well, that's <laughs> okay. A huge this is film fan school. Of, this you know, is raw footage, yeah. and and, yeah. This, and the possibilities you have in post production to work on that yeah. afterwards also for documentary purposes and, and so this is going to be huge this is going to be a very beautiful film as well
0: well you're well very
1: much uh, looking forward to it
0: well very good <laughs> and a good american is a beautiful film to look at and i love the uh, the graphic that you use in the poster but as well as in the film as a, it's just a great visual for us to understand what bill was talking about in a way that we can understand and so much about this film is for everyone anyone you don't need to know a lot about uh intelligence gathering or any of this it's just a solid story well told and uh, i want to thank you so much uh and come back come back for whatever project is you're you're you talked about uh to come back and and tell us and i'd love the opportunity to uh, have a conversation with you about that as well
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me you, in the you, show.
0: Yeah, you are so welcome. And again, the film is called A Good American, and the director is Friedrich Moser, and he has uh, been kind enough to spend uh, some time with us today here on Film School. Thank you so much, Fritz. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Bye.